Well, turn to the book of Esther now. We're looking at Esther pleads for her people. Esther pleads for her people. That's chapter 7 of the book of Esther. We're just looking at the first four verses this morning of chapter 7. I'll read them now. Verse 1. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed, even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favour in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. In Esther chapter 6, we saw that King Ahasuerus of the Medo-Persian Empire was unable to sleep, having attended the first of two banquets of wine that were prepared for him and for his Prime Minister, Haman the Agagite, by Queen Esther. Consequently, the king had the chronicles of the kingdom read to him, and he heard that even though Mordecai, who was a Jew and he was the adoptive father of Queen Esther, even though he had foiled an assassination plot against the king some five years earlier, Mordecai had never been rewarded or honoured. After the king's sleepless night, Haman came to the palace to gain permission from him to hang none other than Mordecai the Jew on a 75 feet high gallows that were made especially for Mordecai. Before Haman could even open his mouth to speak, the king asked him what should be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour. Haman, wrongly thinking that he was the man, suggested dressing him in royal robes, putting a crown upon his head and and parading him through the streets of Shushan, on the king's horse no less, whilst proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. To Haman's horror, the king then instructed him to do precisely that to Mordecai the Jew. Haman later went home with his head covered after doing as he'd been commanded by the king. At this point, it's worth reminding you that as a consequence of Mordecai having refused to bow down and reverence Haman, Mordecai had secured, so Haman had secured an irreversible decree from the king to kill and destroy all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the empire in a year's time. Can you see just how much Haman detested 
not just Mordecai the Jew who refused to bow down and honour him but beyond that all the Jews he hated them all and perhaps you can imagine how he must have felt when the king told him to parade Mordecai through the city of Shushan what humiliation All in all, what we saw in chapter 6 was a turnaround in the lives of Haman and Mordecai. The proud and boastful Haman was being brought low and would soon be hanged on on the gallows that he had erected for Mordecai. We won't be looking at that today. That's for uh, next time. Whereas Mordecai the Jew was being exalted. If you reject coincidence and you reject good luck and bad luck, then you will surely see providence at work in the lives of those two men as God was bringing about the deliverance of the Jews from destruction, which had been devised by the wicked Haman. You'll understand the importance of this turn of events if you appreciate that less than 500 years later, the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and Jesus was born a Jew. In today's passage, chapter 7, we shall see what happened when King Ahasuerus, accompanied by Haman, attended the second of two banquets that had been prepared by Queen Esther. It was the day after the first banquet and it was the same day that Haman suffered the humiliation of parading Mordecai the Jew through the streets of Shushan. Look again at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. Again, that's the second banquet there. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed even to the half of the kingdom. Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favour in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. At the second banquet, King Ahasuerus asked the queen, What is thy request? And it shall be performed even to half of the kingdom. That was the third time that the king had made such a generous and no doubt highly exaggerated offer to the queen. The first time was when she first approached him, having fasted for three days, not just her, but all the Jews in the kingdom had been fasting for the previous three days. On that occasion, she responded to the king's generous offer of up to half the kingdom by simply inviting him to attend the first of the two banquets of wine and to bring Haman with him. The second time was at the first banquet and on that occasion, the queen simply invited the king to attend the second banquet the next day, again with Haman. Now that the king had made that generous offer for a third time at the second banquet, Esther finally pleaded for the lives of her people, the Jews. 
In verse 3, the queen was wise to bring to the king's attention first and foremost that her own life was in mortal danger. It was far more effective for her to begin her plea to the king with the words, let my life be given me at my petition than if she'd simply just pleaded for the Jews. As to why the queen pleaded for her life and the lives of all the Jews only on that third opportunity, the third opportunity when the king said, what do you want? I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Why did she wait for that third opportunity? Perhaps there was some timidity, some fear, some apprehension on her part. Or else perhaps all along she was patiently waiting, praying to God, waiting for the right time to speak up. Although, while she was waiting, she would not have known that in the meantime, Haman would have had gallows built for Mordecai. There's no way she would have foreseen that. Neither would she have had any idea about what would take place in between the two banquets, what with the king's sleepless night, followed by Haman parading her adoptive father, Mordecai, through the streets of Shushan, with Mordecai sitting on the king's horse, wearing the royal robes, and having the king's crown on his head. She would not have foreseen any of those things when she kept quiet instead of speaking up. Whatever the reason was for Esther's missed opportunities, behind the scenes, God was busy working out his purpose in his time. As it is written in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak. And that time is God's time. Even the exodus of the Jews out of Egypt was in God's perfect time. To the very day, as it is written in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 41, and it came to pass at the end of 430 years even the, the self-same day it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. I've always loved that verse. I can remember donkeys years ago now when my old pastor first brought that one to my attention. Even the self-same day the Jews had their deliverance out of Egypt. God's perfect timing. Nothing random about it. As for the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners, that most certainly did not happen on some random day. As it is written in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was come. What does that mean, when the fullness of the time had come? It's God's time again, isn't it? God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God have sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, there you have it. If you are someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
and you're someone who knows and addresses God as Father or Abba Father, that is because God, in his perfect time, in the fullness of time, sent his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to fulfil the law's demands on your behalf and to pay the price for your sin at the cross in God's time. And I'd, I'd venture to say that even, and, and the, when you became a Christian, on that day when you first believed, it was in God's perfect time. It's not when you decided to sign a decision slip or repeat a sinner's prayer, when you decided to, it was ordained by God that even the time. Let's have a look at verse 4. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen or slaves and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. In this verse, Queen Esther was saying to the king that it did not make financial sense to kill and destroy the Jews. It didn't add up. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain and to perish is a reference to chapter 3 and verse 9 where Haman offered to pay 10,000 talents out of his own money into the treasury for the death of all the Jews. The point that Queen Esther was making was that kept alive The Jews were hard-working, they were industrious people, and they were worth far more than 10,000 talents kept alive. Esther went on to say that she would have kept quiet had her people, the Jews, simply been sold into slavery instead of being under sentence of death. Even then, they would have been of far greater value to the king as free people than as slaves. So it just simply did not make sense financially to kill the Jews. What Esther very wisely did not do when she made her plea to the king was implicate or incriminate him in the plan to kill the Jews, although he was far from innocent. And you'll see that if you've been following through this book. Do you remember when when the decree went out across the... Uh, sent out to the 127 provinces of the kingdom. What was the king doing? Him and Haman, they were sitting down drinking wine. It meant nothing to him. Esther made no mention of the fact that when Haman had offered to pay 10,000 talents into the treasury, the king said to Haman, the silver is given to thee the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Neither did Esther mention the fact that the the decree to destroy all the Jews was sealed with a ring taken from the finger of the king's hand. He took the ring off his finger and he gave it to Haman to seal the, the irreversible decree to kill all the Jews. As such, had the Jews been destroyed, their blood would have been every bit as much on the king's hand 
as on Haman's. But wisely the king, uh, rather the queen kept silent about those matters of fact. We have to remember that King Ahasuerus was not a good guy. He was every bit as wicked as Haman and so the queen had to tread very carefully. She was walking on eggshells with the king, even though he offered her, promised her up to half his kingdom. He was still a very wicked ruler. Even if the king couldn't care less about the lives of the Jews, he would have cared about their value to his kingdom. Once again, Queen Esther showed herself to be much more than a pretty face. God had equipped her with much wisdom for the all-important task of negotiating with the king on behalf of the Jewish people. People talk about having the wisdom of Solomon. How many times have you heard it? Maybe you've said it yourself. The wisdom of Solomon. Forgetting that Solomon prayed for and received wisdom from God. Also, on numerous occasions when Jesus silenced his enemies who sought to test him and find fault with him, he demonstrated his own infinitely wise divine wisdom. It was a godly wisdom from the man who is God. And he just silenced them when they tried to trip him up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, It is written, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who is, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Basically, that's telling us that if you belong to Jesus, he is your everything. Including your wisdom. As such, yours is a wisdom that comes from God. May you earnestly seek the wisdom of your great God and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, through prayerful reading of the Scriptures as you look to the Holy Spirit to apply Bible truth to your born-again life and to God be the glory. And what I'm saying there, I was going to say suggest, but what I'm actually saying is you can't really expect godly wisdom to fall from the heavens if you're not reading the scriptures you need to be prayerfully reading the bible and looking to god to apply that bible truth to a born again life for his glory that's wisdom finally in verses three and four we see queen esther not only pleading for the jews but for herself as well. She pleaded for her life and for the lives of her people. In so doing, she let it be known that she was a Jew. That required great courage. After all, she could have pleaded for the Jews and made a big deal, as she did, about them being um, better alive than dead to the king. She could have done all that without declaring herself to be a Jew as well. It's easy to take our place among the Lord's people and sing hymns like we sung earlier on. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. When you are at church and there's no danger 
But it's quite another thing to nail your colours to the mast as belonging to Jesus when there is a risk to your life. There are many Christians in various parts of the world who pay the ultimate price of martyrdom for not hiding their light under a bushel and great is their reward in heaven. Here on our little island, the worst that Christians are likely to experience as a result of openly declaring their faith in Jesus is what? Insults, persecution in the workplace and perhaps financial loss. That's a biggie, isn't it? The financial loss. I suspect it's the financial loss that, that keeps people quiet, Christians quiet, and keeps them hidden under the bushel. If ever you feel yourself avoiding or shying away from confessing Christ because of repercussions, just remember that as a Christian, you are still in this world for a purpose. What are you in the world for? To build an empire for yourself? To save up for holidays if ever we get to go on holiday again? For the new car? Why are you still in the world? It's because you are here to glorify Jesus, the King of glory, who made himself of no reputation when he came into this world. And he suffered and he bled and he died on a wooden cross, bearing away your sin. In turn, it is given unto you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. I've taken that from Philippians. It is given unto you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. In other words, claiming to be a Christian without suffering for Christ's sake is every bit as ridiculous as claiming to be a Christian and not believing in Christ. You wouldn't imagine someone to be a real Christian if they don't believe in Jesus. Well, it's given unto you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. The two go together. Remember that. Think about it. Even on this little island of ours, you really need to think about this. And if you never suffer for Christ's sake, that ought to ring alarm bells. Last of all, if your people whom you loved, whom you loved were facing death, you might well plead for their lives and perhaps even risk losing your own life in the process. Yet it has to be said that unless you die first, those people who you are prepared to plead for and even lay down your own life for, obviously I'm talking about family here and perhaps even some friends, you've got to realise that unless you go first, they're going to die anyway. Therefore, what is the most pressing need for those people whom you love and who will die and they will meet their maker? It is to hear the gospel and to be reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing for anyone in this world, to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. 
Everything else piles into insignificance in comparison. If you love people enough to imagine that you might even risk your own life interceding for them, then don't be too scared to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, your love for others ought to extend beyond your family, beyond your circle of friends, to your enemies. Pray for their salvation. Pray for opportunities to speak to them about the love, the mercy, the grace and the justice of God that was manifest at the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificially laid down his life. Amen.